Welcome to this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing the story of Noah and the flood. This is a story that many of you may already be familiar with, but I think we're going to explore some of the things about this story that you may not have heard before. If you didn't catch last week's episode discussing the story of Cain and Abel, go ahead and give that a listen as well. We also discussed two lengthy genealogies that occur in Genesis 4 and 5, so if you missed that, you'll definitely want to tune in. We are in Genesis 6 to 9 today, if you're following along at home. Thanks for reading the Bible with us. It's great to have you along in this journey through Scripture. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley. Ever since my wife and I became Catholic, I've been passionate about opening up the Scriptures and helping people to read the Bible for themselves. So we're happy to have you with us as we dive into Genesis 6 through 9 and explore the story of Noah and the flood. In last week's episode, we discussed the immediate manifestation of the effects of the fall. We saw how Cain followed the blueprint set by Adam for rejecting God's forgiveness and confessing and repenting of his sin. We also explored the two genealogies of Cain and Seth, and we saw that Seth's lineage will be the one to carry on the family name of God, since they continue to worship God as they call on the name of the Lord, whereas Cain's lineage seeks to make a name for themselves. With all of that in mind, let's dive into Genesis 6-9, the story of the flood. The text begins with a strange continuation from the genealogies of Genesis 5. It says, When men began to multiply on the face of the ground and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. So we're introduced to a people, the Nephilim, who are mighty, but the origin of the Nephilim is mysterious. The sons of God and the daughters of men bear children together? What could this be referring to? Some have suggested that the sons of God is a veiled reference to angels so that the Nephilim are the offspring of human women and angelic creatures. But I think this ignores some of what we've read previously in Genesis. Remember, I told you not to skip the genealogies. The sons of God, I think, is a reference to the family line of Seth. The lineage of Seth, if you remember, extends all the way back to Adam, whereas Cain's begins with Cain. The text is showing us that it is the line of Seth that are the true sons of God since they call on the name of the Lord, and the line of Cain, because they make a name for themselves, are the sons of men. What I think is happening here is that these two lineages are mixing. The evil men of the line of Cain are now in league with the previously righteous line of Seth. This is why the text in Genesis immediately shifts to say, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now the whole of human race is being corrupted by sin, and the wickedness spreads. God is grieved at his creation of mankind. This is something that brings me back to the classical theological work from the great church father Athanasius. In his book, On the Incarnation, Athanasius describes the fall as creating a divine dilemma where God must treat human sin with judgment, but yet it is not fitting for creatures who bear the image of God to descend into nothingness. Of course, of course, Athanasius rightly sees the incarnation of Jesus to be the ultimate answer to this dilemma. But I think Genesis is highlighting this problem, and the statement that God is grieved with his creation of mankind shows this. So God will mete out judgment upon the world through a flood, except on the one righteous man left, a man named Noah. I want to pause here to remind you that we're not reading a natural history of the ancient world. We're reading a story that is about God, man, and man's relationship with God. So we're not bound to say that this coming flood is a definitively global flood that covered literally every piece of land in the, in the world. I will say that almost all ancient creation mythologies, interestingly enough, include stories of some kind of cataclysmic flood. So it seems that in the ancient Near East, there was probably a flood of great magnitude that influenced the kinds of stories they told. But if we ask questions about what Genesis is teaching about natural history, we're going to miss the actual things that the author is trying to communicate. Remember, we're not asking, asking questions about how and when of the text. We're asking who and why. So let's examine the flood narrative together. The story of the flood is one that is known even outside of Christian circles. The world becomes evil. God tells a guy named Noah to build an ark. People laugh at him. Then the flood comes, and Noah and all the animals he's just loaded onto his ark escape. But I think there's more going on here. One of the things I think people often don't give the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, enough credit on is its value merely as a story. Now, I don't mean to say that that's all I think the Bible is, is a fun fictional story, but I do think the historical writings of the Old Testament have immense literary value. Genesis was written by a narrative genius. The flood narrative, for instance, employs a literary technique called a chiasm. A biblical chiasm is a literary structure commonly found in the Bible that repeats themes or ideas in a mirrored pattern. It's like a mirror reflection of information, where the first and last parts, second and second to last parts, and so on, correspond to each other. To understand it better, think of a sandwich. The top layer corresponds to the bottom layer, the second layer corresponds to the second to last layer, and so on. Similarly, in a chiasm, the beginning corresponds to the end, the middle corresponds to the middle, and so forth. This pattern helps emphasize the, and highlight the central message of a passage or story. It draws attention to the main point or key theme by framing it with related ideas on both sides. 
and it creates a sense of balance and structure that enhances the overall meaning of the text. For example, let's say we have a chiasm in a biblical story. The first part of the story might introduce a certain character or event, and the last part brings closure or resolution to that character or event. The second part might present a problem or a conflict, and the second to last part provides a solution or a resolution to that problem. And so by recognizing and understanding these chiastic structures, we can gain deeper insights into the biblical text and appreciate the intentional craftsmanship behind it. It's like unraveling a beautiful pattern that enhances our understanding and appreciation of the message being conveyed. The chiasm that occurs in Genesis 6 to 9 takes place over the entire flood narrative. But the key to understanding chiasms is to identify the central piece. Let's look at this. So in verse 6, 17, God announces the coming flood. In 9, 11 to 17, God announces that no more floods will take place. In 6, 19, God makes a covenant with Noah. In 9, 8 to 10, God makes a covenant with all human flesh. In 7, 17, 40 days of rain. In 8, 6, 40 days of the waters abating. And we could actually map out the entirety of this story and see more than 20 points that are mirrored throughout, which is super fascinating. And if you want to see what that looks like, you can actually go on our website at thebiblereaderspodcast.com and see that. We'll have a link uploaded that shows the whole chiasm of the Genesis narrative. But again, the key is the centerpiece, the piece that has no mirror because it's what the author wants us to focus on. And the key is found in Genesis 8.1. Throughout all of God's judgment in the world, through his grief at the sin of man, through the punishment of the flood and the survival of Noah on the ark, Genesis 8.1 declares, but God remembered Noah. Now, I don't think this is implying that God forgot about Noah in the sense that he was focused on other things and forgot that he had left a guy and a bunch of animals stranded on an ark. No, think of the word remembered here as the opposite of dismembered. If something is dismembered, it is separated or removed. What is happening in the flood is that man's sin has separated man from God. That curse of sin has presented a massive gulf between God and man. And yet, God is still bringing man back to himself. He is rejoining man to God. This is the centerpiece of the chiasm. And it shows the extremely deliberate structure of the flood narrative. Think of where we have come from so far in our story. We began with the world's creation in the Garden of Eden a place of harmony and peace with God. God walks in the garden and communes with Adam and Eve. But after the fall, that harmony is lost and sin expands in the world. Where there was peace and rest and harmony, now there is discord and evil. This immediately manifests with Cain and Abel, but yet there is still a line that comes from Adam and Eve that still remains faithful worshipers of God. But once that line fails, there is none who remain except for Noah. 
It seems that God will blot out all of the human race to prevent them from continual sin and to enact justice upon sinful flesh. But God remembers Noah. He rejoins himself to all of mankind through Noah. And this is the significance of the covenant made after the flood, signified by the rainbow. You may remember that at the beginning of the flood narrative, God makes a covenant with Noah that he will protect Noah and his family from the flood. Because this story is a chiasm, the covenant is reflected at the end. So what do we see? It says, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now the covenant is made with all flesh. And after the flood, things seem to be set right again, just like they were in the Garden of Eden. In fact, we see things that are very similar to the creation narrative that makes sense since the flood serves as kind of a de-creation story. After the flood, God commands Noah to be fruitful and multiply, just like his command to Adam and Eve. He gives Noah dominion over all nature, just like in the garden. And he is given a warning not to eat of a certain illicit item. Noah is told not to eat the blood of an animal, whereas Adam and Eve, of course, are told not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It would seem like we've reached a completed story. But the final chapter of Noah is a dark one. And it's important for understanding the message the author of Genesis is communicating. But for that, you'll have to tune in next week to hear the final episode of this story. So what do we make of the flood narrative? Well, we see the further effects of sin in the world. We've now seen the complete fall of mankind when the only line that calls on the name of the Lord, Seth's descendants, cease to do so and follow the ways of the descendants of Cain. We see that God abhors sin, but faces a dilemma. Will he allow his image-bearing creatures to fully descend into corruption, or will he smite them with the full force of justice? And the answer seems to be kind of in the middle. He will judge evil men with the flood, but he will not utterly blot out man. Instead, he remains faithful to Noah, carrying him through the storm and drawing humanity back to himself again. However, Noah and his family are still tinged by the effects of sin. So the final answer to how God will solve the problem of human sin is yet to come. If you're interested in learning more about this story, please visit our website at thebiblereaderspodcast.com. A new episode of the Bible Readers Podcast is released every Monday, and next week we will be discussing Genesis 9 to 11, and we'll finish the story of Noah and talk about the famous Tower of Babel. So if you're reading along, be sure to read Genesis 9 to 11 before next week. If you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you kindly subscribe and rate us on whatever podcast app you use. It greatly helps our content get out to others. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast.